put on our grace clothes, and we should live consistent with who we are in Christ. And that's really the theme as we've we've looked at the first part of Colossians chapter 3 after dealing with the the theology of Colossians chapter 1 and 2. But Christianity is not simply a transformed life, okay? As we've talked about the effect it has on us, the, the, the inference there is there is transform, transformation in our lives. It does have an impact upon us individually, but it's even more than that because it is not just a transformed life, but it is a life that is transformed that is used to transform an environment and people around you. And that's really where Paul goes as he continues his practical application of the theology of chapters 1 and 2. He's talked about how that hits us, sinner, you know, each one of us. And now it flows out from that and touches uh, the world that we come in contact with. If you think about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mountain in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, he, he spoke and he said these words. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? And the idea of salt here, as you'll see as we move through that context, is that salt creates thirst, right? It has an impact. It has preservation. A lot of things on the environment. He says it's good for nothing anymore if it loses its, its saltiness, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by man. He says this, though, but it's different with you. You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And then he says this. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In other words, there is something as he transforms you that is then having an impact out from you. It is shining out from you, right? And so that men around you may see uh, what God has done and not give glory to you, but give glory to him. Our lives are meant to show Christ to others. Helen Ewing, Ewing was a young girl when she was saved in Scotland, and she gave her life completely to the Lord. She died young. She died at the age of 22, but it's said in Scotland that when she died, all of Scotland wept, 22 years old. Uh, she wasn't a political figure or a famous person in a sense. She just was a person who loved the Lord. She expected that God would use her for all of her life to, to serve as a missionary in Russia. And to that end, she'd already learned Russian and become fluent in it. She didn't really have obvious uh, giftedness, such as speaking or writing or, or things like that. And she never even traveled far from her homes, regardless of what her, her plan was. But by the time she had died at age 22, she had led a lot of people to the Lord. She'd been used by God. You see, she used to rise every morning at 5 a.m. to study God's word and pray. Just be in the word, have fellowship with her father through his, his, the text that he preserved for her and pray in that communion with him. Her diary revealed that she regularly paid, prayed for, get this, over 300 missionaries regularly. Everywhere she went, the environment changed. Dirty jokes halted when she came into a room. Complaining people stopped complaining. One person said of her that when she came into the room, the fragrance of God was with her. That's the effect of just one person, right? That's the effect that we should all have by the witness of our life lived in Christ Jesus. 
And as we move through now this applicational part of the book of Colossians, you see that that influence, that transformation that happened to you and to I who are in Christ, then has uh, continuing effects like concentric circles moving out on those around us. And it should be seen in the closest areas, and it should be seen in the farthest as well. We are to have an impact, uh, and sometimes it is to be most obvious in the case of our families, those who are with us the most. You can compare the effect of two men who lived early on in America. One was a devout Christian minister whose name was Jonathan Edwards. You've heard that name probably. He, he married a strong Christian girl. And out of their union over a certain period of years, there came 729 descendants. Now, that's not just them. You understand that, right? I don't have to go through that, right? Uh, of these 729 descendants that were studied, over 300 of them became ministers 65 were college professors, 13 were university presidents, 60 were authors of good books, three were U.S. congressmen in a day and age when that was a good thing, and one was a vice president of the United States. Almost 70% of Jonathan Edwards' descendants in that period of that study made a positive contribution to society, and there was only one known black sheep in the family, by the grace of God, Right? The other man that they studied was a contemporary of Jonathan Edwards, a, name by the, a man by the name of Max Jukes. He lived very close to Jonathan Edwards at the same period of time, but he was an unbeliever. He, he married an unbeliever, and over the same period of time, they had 1,026 offspring uh, descendants, 300 of whom died at an early age. 100 went to prison for an average of 13 years each, 200 of them, that's one in five, were public prostitutes. Another 100, 10%, were alcoholics. And it's estimated that the family cost the state over $1 million, and none of them made a significant contribution to society. What was the difference? Well, let me, let me boil it down first in one word. Grace. All right? Starts there. I don't want you to think by, as, by this story that if you do X, Y, and Z, then everything's going to turn out exactly like Jonathan Edwards, okay? Because it is still the grace of God. But the Bible does tell us in a proverb, not a promise, that if you are to train up a child in the way he should go, when he's old, it will not depart from it, right? So there is an impact that, that comes. The grace of God is the centerpiece of that, and all this happens because of the grace of God. But we also know that God gives us means of grace, right? The word of God, prayer, the fellowship of a body, and things like that, that he uses to pour his grace out in ever-increasing quantities. And so the primary factor becomes that grace, which is lived out in that family, where the transformed life is, is lived and, and taught according to what the Word of God teaches. You see, the transformed life does not merely change individuals, but as Paul shows us here, it, it changes the home. And that's what we're going to look at today. And we need to look at this, okay, because the home's in a lot of trouble. I think you may realize that. Uh, There's a sign I saw some time ago in a jewelry store in Hollywood, and the sign said this, we rent wedding rings. There's commitment for you, right? I think we're going to rent, honey. <laughs> how, how long of a lease do you have on the wedding ring? The average marriage lasts seven years. That's not funny. About half of all the women born in the 80s. How many of you were born in the 80s? All right. Now everybody knows how old you are. 
About half of the women born in the 80s will divorce in their lifetime. The U.S. leads the world in divorce, and the result is not only the divorce and all the hardship between those two folks, but there's 2,750 newly heartbroken children in the U.S. every day from divorce. It's over a million a year. The world is in the process, as you are well aware, I'm sure, of redefining the family from God's design to their own design. What is a marriage? What is a relationship? What is a home? The, the, the marriage, as you'll remember, is the foundation of our society, quite honestly, and, and now that has constantly been under attack for some time now to the point now where I think the battle has almost been lost, hasn't it? Now you see children's books such as Daddy Has a Roommate and Mommy has, Heather Has Two Mommies and things like that, which redefine the God-ordained plan for the family and encourages children to embrace alternate family structures as viable and healthy alternatives. Biblically speaking, the first institution that God ever established was the home. Before the church, right? Before Israel, the first institution that was established by God was the home in Genesis chapter 2. And, and quite honestly, the history, and history has shown us as the home goes, so does the society. In fact, by the time you get to 2 Timothy chapter 3, as, as the Holy Spirit is teaching us about the end times, he, it tells us there that the, the, the sign of the end times, one of the signs of the end times, is the breakdown of the home. 2 Timothy 3 says things like, uh, men will be lovers of self, lover of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, dis-, and then things like this, disobedient to parents, unloving, irreconcilable. And that the, the, the normal cause for dis- divorce nowadays is irreconcilable differences. The home has been under attack. The home is being changed by the way that society thinks. And the question that you and I must face as we come to the Word of God, as we come to His instructions, is how should we live as Christians? Are we to fall prey to all that and just be good, tolerant people who, who say, yeah, you know, what's good for you is good for you and have kind of a postmodern kind of thinking about us? Or do we still stand upon what the Word of God teaches See, the book of Colossians, along with the Word of God, has been answering all that, and it was really summed up very nicely in in chapter 3, verse 17, where it says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Everything's consistent with that, the name being his essence, who he is, the Word of God, what he stands for, his character, his design. And, And if we're to do those things in accordance with his design, his character, and who he is to his glory, we cannot do that and then start to... Uh, chip away parts of what his design is and throw away parts of his character, right? This is the foundation, this idea that our lives, our words, our deeds, our thoughts are to be done to the glory of God. And it's upon this foundation that Paul tells us how the Christian life is, is lived out. It impacts us, that, that transformed life is an impact for us. But then he moves out of that after talking about that in verses 5 through 17 of our chapter. He moves to 18 to 21 and talks about those next closest relationships, right? The home, wives, husbands, children, parents. Then he moves out and says that transformed life is going to have an impact too in the workplace. And he talks about slaves and masters. And then he says that, that, it, that transformed life is going to have an impact, quite honestly, on the entire world living it out. 
How do you live with those who are outside? And he talks about that in chapter 4, verse 2 and following. Today what we're going to do is we're going to consider the Christian home, the impact of the transformed life on the Christian home. Now, I need your prayer on this because this is typically four messages. Have you got four hours? No, you don't. I know you don't. I don't expect that of you. But I'm going to have to be very, very disciplined (laughs) in the way that I approach this text so I don't run off in a lot of areas that I'm going to want to run off to, okay? So we're going to look at these, and we're going to look at each one of these could be a sermon of, of itself, but we're going to look at it in one day, Lord willing, all right? Let's look at our passage. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, down through verse 21. Wives... Be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. Now, the first thing we want to notice on this, quite honestly, in some ways, an inflammatory section of Scripture is that the emphasis here is not upon rights. It is upon duties, all right? It is not upon a a receiving end so much as it is upon a giving end. It is, these are duties which are reciprocal that are going on. Now, don't get ready to poke your elbow into your spouse who's next to you or somebody like that, okay? Because the thing you got to see about this, and I hope you did as I read it, is you're going to fall into at least one of these categories, okay? You're going to fall into one of them at some point in your life. The first one that we see there in verse 18 is the Christian wife. And it says simply this, wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, this passage is, that we have today, like so many, have clarity, but yet it's so flammable to people. This is a virtual hornet's nest in our society. People don't want to touch this. Pastors don't want to preach it typically and people want to run away from this truth. But this is what the Word of God says. And it brings up to most people in our society, raised in our generation, uh, to most people it brings up images of, of cavemen pulling women around by their hair uh, and, and just kind of a putting down perspective of women as second-class citizens. And that, my friends, is nothing even close to what's being said here. That's not what the Bible teaches, and that is a wrong view. But what I want to ask of you this morning is I want you to look at this, these verses, and particularly, gals, I want you to look at this one as I want you to look at it honestly and see what the Word of God is teaching. And put aside any preconceived notions and things like that and see what God says in His Word and then submit ourselves to what we learn in His Word as that which is best. Now, this is a passage that is often trying to be written off and explained away. Liberal theologians, and some who are not so liberal, try to explain this away in a variety of ways. One argument that they use is that this particular part of Scripture is not from the Holy Spirit. Okay? This is something that's just Paul and his chauvinism kind of showing through. Okay? So we just ignore that because that's some kind of cultural thing going on there. What's the problem with that? Where do we begin, right? There's all kinds of problems with that because what that describes is something we dealt with in chapter 2 of Colossians, right? Called intellectualism. It is where I'm putting my mind above scriptures and allowing me to be the judge of what scriptures are and are not. It's the Thomas Jefferson Bible, right? It's left with a bunch of stuff, non-miraculous, and just a description of a few things up to the grave to the cross of Christ with no resurrection, no hope. 
okay? We don't go to the Word of God and start carving it up and chipping away the things we don't like about it or that make us uncomfortable. We go to it, and it is a mirror which we see ourselves and we see our imperfections, and it is a mirror that is meant to be used by the power of God and the Holy Spirit of God to change us and mold us and shape us into what God's design is to look like. Other liberal theologians would say that Paul is just uh, commenting on Genesis chapter 2, which is not inspired, but rather just an Old Testament rabbinical addition. Again, the problems are immense here. Number one, Jesus said that he referred to Genesis in the early account there as Scripture, right? And if he, doesn't think, if he thinks it's Scripture, we think it's Scripture, right? Because God cannot lie. Second uh, Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture, which is how Jesus refers to this passage, is God-breathed, that is inspired, right? So that kills that off completely. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good word. And that includes Genesis 2 and Colossians 3, 18 through 21. Some say it's, well, just, again, the cultural idea. They take it a little different. It's not chauvinistic. and It is Holy Spirit inspired for that generation, but not for this generation. The funny thing is you have four instructions here in the verses I just read to you, and it's the only one they ever want to call cultural. I mean, does anybody really want to stand up and say, husband, love your wives, that's cultural? We ought to do away with it? No, of course not. And you need to understand as we study this as well, this is not isolated scripture, okay? No less than six times in the New Testament we have this exact same teaching. God said it six times so that we would maybe start to get it over time. And contrary to the liberal perspective The Bible teaches that wives are to be subject to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And this is not a negative thing. I know that that, even in the the best of us who have grown up in in the last 40 years or so, this is a hard thing to stomach. But what the Bible designs for for husbands and wife is a a beautiful picture that is one that is complementary to one another, roles that are complementary. And it's a beautiful thing once you understand it biblically, all right? Let me help you with that. We are, husbands and wives, equal, okay? You understand that, right? But we have different roles. It's as simple as that. If you kind of keep that as something to hang your hat on, we're going to do okay. Most of our problems with this passage come from two really misunderstandings. And one of them is this, I reject God's word. And it's as simple as that. That's not the Christian position, okay? That, that's, that's the world's position, but it is a position that's out there. I don't believe that this 2,000-year-old book has anything to say to me. I don't care what it says. I don't want to know what it says. And what it says doesn't have any impact on my life today. Okay, that's one way that people just kind of push this aside. The second one is, and it really boils down to this, it's a wrong concept of what submission and subjection is. And that's really the, the big issue there. To most people, submission means inferior right? When you say that's kind of, it's okay. You can nod or not while here. It's not like you're going to be wrong or anything or embarrassed around your friends. It's, most people, when you think of having to submit to somebody, the, the connotation that comes up in our American heads uh, is that that's a negative thing, right? That that person who has to submit is inferior. In other words, I'm an employee and I have to submit to my, my owner or my manager or something like that. And I'm inferior to him because he owns a thing or runs a thing, right? But someday I want to be the manager, I want to be the owner, and then I won't have to submit, so I won't be inferior anymore. 
that's a wrong view and it's an unbiblical view of submission. Let me ask you this. Was Jesus Christ ever inferior to anybody else? It's not a trick question. No, he's not. He's a God-man, right? Okay. Second question. Did Jesus Christ ever submit to anybody else? Yes. So how could he be, at the highest level he could be, and submit, and submission mean you were inferior? It's impossible, right? That would be uh, something that doesn't make any sense and, and would argue against the other position, right? The reality is Jesus did submit, right? He humbled himself. He submitted himself to the Father. Remember that? He would talk, he'd say, you know, I just submit myself. I do what the Father's, what I see the Father doing, I do. He submitted himself to his parents. Do you remember that in Luke 2? Right? He, he, can you imagine as the creator, you spoke the world into existence. You, you are the Lord over everything. And now you come down here, which is hard enough, right? And, and you, you, you are born, which is a whole different kind of animal and everything. And now you've got these two fallen creatures that you're submitting to. Ever had a boss that was dumber than you? <laughs> I see a few nods on that one. You know what I'm talking about, right? Can you imagine if you're God and trying to submit to a fallen creature? But Jesus did that. Did that make him less than God? No. The Bible's absolutely clear on that. Submission does not mean inferior. By the way, along that same line, you need to understand that submission is not absolute. Uh, remember the apostles in Acts chapter 5, we obey God rather than men. So as you, wives, as you submit to your husband, you're not submitting to, if he asks you to do something that is contrary to what the word of God teaches you, that is not an area that you're to submit to. You understand that, right? That doesn't mean that you disrespect him. It doesn't mean that you teach him, treat him in a non-subjective attitude. But it means you don't uh, go contrary to the word of God in, in, in that submission. There will be many times, every wife in this room can testify to the fact, there are many times when, when husbands are imperfect, right? Kim, do you have anything to add here? It's enough, thank you. <laughs> right? It's the way it is, right? We're, we're, we're not always smart as you on everything, right? So you can have a husband who's a good mechanic and a wife that a, a, has an MBA and a financial wizard and he's kind of taking care of the the finances, and I mean, she knows a lot more about that than him, right? And there's a way that you come alongside each other and compliment and all that kind of stuff, but it could be easy to say, you know what, you're just stupid on this and you need to listen to me. And that's not the attitude we're really talking about here. In fact, wives are called in First Peter chapter 3 to be submissive to your own husband so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of the wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. What Paul doesn't say there in those hard situations, he doesn't say leave your husband. In fact, he addresses that in 1 Corinthians 7 as something you shouldn't do. And he doesn't say, you know, uh, you've got to preach to the husband, it says without a word, or demand her rights to be fulfilled, be submissive, right? So submission's not absolute, but there are times that it's less than easy as, you know, it doesn't mean it's always easy. Again, Submission is not inferior, it's not absolute, and this teaching here is not in the context of authoritarianism. What's the context of our verse here? Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And what's the next part? Husbands, what? 
love your wives. See the context? The context on both sides of this thing, and you can go back to the near context on either side, and real close to both of them, you have love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and you have a husband who is to love in a whole different way, which we'll talk about in a little while. The husband is commanded to love his wife, not to boss her, not to control her, not to break her, not to enslave her, things like that. For some guys, I'll be honest with you, this verse, Colossians 3.18, is like their only memory verse. (laughs) You know, they get an argument. Wives, be some subjection to your husband. You know, it's like, no, no, no. This is not something you're needing to teach her, right? Not, Not by preaching it to her. When Paul says, wives, be subject to your husbands, it's a beautiful command of Scripture. It's an act of worship. It's a spiritual discipline that is enacted, as our verse says, as is fitting to the Lord. It's fitting to your position in the Lord. Because you have been saved by the blood of Christ, because he has redeemed you and forgiven you of all this, maybe turned you from a wretch to an amazing child of grace. The fitting way to respond as a wife in a marital relationship is in subjection to him as if you're subjecting to the Lord. Be subject, it says there. That's in the Greek, present tense. That means it's continuous. It's an habitual activity, an activity that's fitting. By the way, if you have a problem with this so far, your problem is not with me. I know I'm the one speaking it up here, but your problem is with the Word of God. It's just what he says. And I submit to you this, folks. What he's doing here, what God's doing when he makes these commandments like this for the husband and the wife, is he's restoring paradise. He really is. If you think about creation, and you think about the husband being alone, right? And then God parades all the animals through, remember that? Name them all. That wasn't just like they need to be named, right? You understand this wasn't just, you know, rhino, bear, platypus, you know, that kind of thing. What was he doing? He was showing that every creature that God has created is different from him. There's nothing here I can identify with. This one has a duck bill. This one has a horn. You know, this one has fur all over. Well, anyway, you know, so he's showing him that he's different, right? And he's showing him that he's alone in a sense. Not lonely yet, but alone. And it's right in that context, after he does that, it becomes obvious that there is not one suitable for man. So it's in that context that the wife is made. Somebody who is suitable for him, a helpmate, right? One who compliments him, is corresponding to his literal translation of the Hebrew there. And so, so what's going on here is you're taking this from, and what happened in the fall, okay, you had that, okay? This beautiful relationship, different roles still even then in the garden, right? But, and different beauties and strengths and all that kind of stuff, but complementary to each other. Then the fall comes, right? You remember the fall? Adam and Eve, the apple, you remember that? I don't have to go into the serpent and tell the whole story there, right? When the curse comes, it's this. The husband's going to rule over you, and you're going to not like it. Now, this is not, contrary to some people's teaching, where this commandment comes from. So he's going to rule over you, so be in subjection to him, because he's not there to rule like an iron fist over you. He, He is there to... To, to, uh, to guide and have a complimentary role and be where the buck stops on some decisions and different things like that, and to love you as Christ loved the church. So what happens here is you go from this beautiful picture to this picture of animosity where he's trying to push her down, and that's where your chauvinism comes from, and she's trying to fight against, that's where your women's liberation movement type stuff comes from, and both of those are all out of whack with God's design. Pendulums have moved too far in both camps in the wrong direction. 
What he does here is he draws this picture. Okay, wives be in subjection as a fitting to the Lord. Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church and all this kind of stuff. And he brings that together and, and the two become one in this one well-oiled machine that is functioning in harmony with one another towards a common goal for his glory. So what's really happening here is he's pushing these roles back and putting a taste of paradise back into the picture. You know, it's been said that God didn't take woman from man's feet to be trampled upon or from man's head so that she could dominate him, but from his side to be a companion near to his heart. And so the picture of submission here is never one of one is lower and one is higher. It is a position of, of, of a harm, harmony. It's like two notes playing well, moving in the same direction, playing the same magnificent orchestration that brings glory to God. If you want to, sometime go to 1 Peter 3, and you'll see Sarah as an example of this. You know Abraham was not a perfect guy, but she's used by Peter and by the Holy Spirit in that passage to, to, to show you um, that kind of submission, which is really this idea of you know putting yourself under, in a sense, under authority, that is, allowing the husband to lead even when you know better, maybe, and doing it willingly as an act of worship and, self di- and spiritual discipline. Now, by the way, just think about this as a matter of application. Do you see, gals, ladies, how important this is to marry a believer? Right? I mean, this is absolutely important. And you'll see this even more as we get to the Christian husband. Here, why don't we just do that right now? Christian husband, verse 19. So this subjection, by the way, is a lot easier to this kind of guy. I think you'll get this. Husbands, guys, your turn, our turn. Love your wives and do not be embittered against them. By the way, I'd much rather preach this verse than the one before it. Because I'm a guy preaching a girl, to a girl. You know, it just doesn't feel, it just feels strange sometimes. But it's scripture and all scripture is profitable and that's what it's called to do, all right? While verse 18 raises the uproar, uproar today, verse 19 really would have been the controversial verse in Paul's time. They totally got wives being in subjection back then in, in a, an authoritarian way. That was like, oh yeah, we get that. What about the guy, what, love her? Totally to the ears that were reading this and having it read to them in this day and age, this thing would have shocked, would have rocked their world. William Barclay tells us that under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was a possession of her husband, according to the law, just the same as his house or his flock. She didn't have any rights whatsoever, and a man could divorce his wife from anything from burning his bagels or on, you know. But a woman could not divorce her husband no matter what. In Greek society, a wife couldn't even eat with men. Edward Losey, the commentator, says you, you won't find the command love your wife in any extra bi- biblical household rules of the day from that time because that was like over the top. But what God says, it's shocking to their ears, but he says it, right? Husbands, love your wives. Now the word for love here is agapao, the verb, okay? And, and there's a lot of different, as you're probably aware, words for love, okay? Uh, this one doesn't really emphasize affection or romantic attachment, although you certainly have that aspect, but that's not what he's pushing on right here. What he's, what he's trying to, 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 to show by using this word is he's trying to denote a caring love, 
a deliberate uh, attitude of mind that concerns itself with the well-being of the one that's being loved. The tense here is, is present tense, so it's keep on continually loving, choosing to love in the ways that we'll describe here in a little bit. And what kind of love is this, okay? Because, again, in our society, we tend to think of love in terms of what the television shows us or a movie shows us or something like that, right? Or what Hallmark says, okay? And it's all hearts and cupids. And I don't know what's so loving about a little naked guy with a bow and arrow. That doesn't make much sense to a Texan. But anyway, you know, this is a whole different animal here. This kind of love is something over the top. He says, you know, Ephesians, in Ephesians 5.25, he tells us that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Now think about that for a second. I mean, how did Christ love this church? Well, first and foremost, there should be one word that comes to mind. What's that word? Starts with an S. Ends with sacrificially what? <laughs> sacrificially, that's right. I mean, think about this. This was sacrifice. Jesus Christ was in heaven. He was God, and he humbled himself came to this earth, gave his life, not because we deserved it, right guys and gals? In fact, we deserve just the opposite, true? So you're not loving your wife, guys, because she's being good to you or she's loving you. You love her even when she's not, right? And you love her in a way that puts her above yourself. Well, that's uncomfortable for me. Well, love her that way. Well, that costs me something. Well, love her that way. Love her like Jesus did. Jesus, I mean, look at how Jesus loved. All through the New Testament, you go to a place like, say, John 13, and it's just pouring over his love for, for the church, for his disciples there, Right? John 13, verse 1 says, Before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he should depart out of this world to be with his Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. I'll tell you what, if you know you're about to go to the cross, you might be, it might be in our society, in our thinking process to go, you know what? I need a little me time, All right? I'm about to go through this big, I need, I need some, this is about me now. You guys back off, all right? But it says there, Explicitly, he loved them to the end. He was on their mind to the end. He was the one they were doing that. He was doing that for. A little later in verses 12 through 15, we find him uh, coming to the disciples. They're reclined at a table and he gets on, he, he girds his loins and he gets down and he washes their feet. He wipes their nasty, dirty feet off during this same time. And he says, hey, I want you to understand service, and I want you to understand this is not a foot washing like we ought to be having that like baptism or Lord's table. It's like some folks do. But he's saying this is the way your life ought to be, pouring yourself out for somebody else's benefit, sacrificially serving. In fact, by the time you get towards the end of, of chapter 13, in verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I loved you. You ought to love one another. And what he means there is sacrificially. Pour your life out. Husbands, you ought to love, we ought to love our wives in a way that is not mostly concerned with ourself, but concerned for her. Guys, how do you help your wife to be able to minister, to grow, to learn? Do you free her up enough to, to do Bible studies with other gals and to, to pray and to be involved and have, do, are you ever so booked up with stuff, working and serving and cleaning and doing all this stuff in your house that, that she doesn't even have time to open her Bible or pray 
or develop discipleship relationships with other women. Something to think about. As we look for a sacrificial love, it might be, and I'm not saying this is the case in every situation, but I'm saying it might be that part of your sacrifice is that you live in a crummier house and don't drive as nice a car because you don't want to spend as much money because you don't make that much money so that she can be as a, like a missionary you're sending out and having an impact on, her, on your kids and on the family. Now, what I just didn't say, in case you're getting distracted, is I didn't, say it's, I didn't say it's wrong for a woman to work or wife to work or anything like that. I didn't say that, okay? But what I said is, sometimes we do it so that we can have leather seats in our BMW instead of cloth. And that's selfish for ourselves, and it's prideful and all kinds of stuff, if that's our motive. Nobody amen that. But it might be, in your case or my case, that may be something I need to look at or you need to look at, right? It might be you're driving around in a beautiful, high-end BMW with leather seats and you can afford it. And that's okay, too. I don't have a problem. That's you and the Lord, how you figure that one out. You know, it's, but, you know, just, it's not about the leather seats and it's not about the BMW. It's about what am I selling off so that this happens? Are you tracking with me? Give me one of these because I can need to move on. I got a lot of stuff to talk about. It's a sacrificial love. It's also a purifying love. Ephesians 5, 25, husband loves your, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might, talking about Christ and the church, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water and the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. As I try to model Christ's love for the church, one thing I need to be careful about, and this is closely akin to what I was just talking about, is I want to give my wife the opportunities to grow and to help her to grow. Sometimes that's confrontation and correction. Uh, most of the time it's, it's more like giving opportunities and, and chances to, to have that time with the Lord and others to grow and leading her in that and, and family worship or whatever else. The Lord has for us at our time. It's a purifying love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a caring love. Husbands ought to love their own wives, it says in Ephesians 5, 28 through 30, as they love their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also the church, because we are members of his body. See, there's a caring love. You know, we're watching out for ourselves. Are we caring for her in the same kind of way? It's an unbreakable love, too. Ephesians 5.31, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. In quotes Genesis 2 there. It's, it's unbreakable. By death is it breakable, right? The definitive definition of love is found in 1 Corinthians 13. As a pastor, I don't think I've ever preached on that. Um, I've certainly preached on it in sense in weddings. You get that one a lot in weddings. But you go, it's 13 verses in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, and, and the part that really can hit you, you know, you got the beginning where it says lo- love. Every, anything without love is, like, worthless, right? For three verses, then he talks about what love is, and then he talks about, you know, the things to come a little bit. You look at those verses 4 through 8 where he talks about what love is, and I tell you what, you can sit on each one of those and camp out on every one of those for weeks on end and learn and apply. When it says things like, you know, love is patient. How does that affect you, husband, as you love your wife? Patience. Love is kind. Husband, how are you being kind to your wife? 
Uh, love is not jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. How's that one for you? You ever get an argument and wrong suffered list come out? Love doesn't do that. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Get this, love never fails. That's the way, guys, we are to love our wives. Right now, the main thing going through your head is probably, I can't do that very well. Join the club. It's a process. It's part of progressive sanctification. But I tell you what, just sitting here and saying, I can't do that very well. I'm not doing anything about it really doesn't do you much good. Because here's the deal. God's not a mean God, okay? He didn't give you these commandments just to, like, make you feel bad, right? <laughs> He's like, wouldn't that, you know what I mean? Like, we picture God sometimes saying, you know, love is patient. You ought to be patient. And it's like, I can't do it. You're mean to me, you know, right? Like some little two-year-old. But God loves us, and he's saying this. He's saying, don't you know? And these are all verbs, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patienting, <laughs> right? Love is it's, it's acting this way. And you know what? I've given you my Holy Spirit, and I'm telling you this in my word that I preserve for you. I've given you everything you need to move down that path. I understand that you will not do this perfectly, but I'll tell you this. I've given you my grace to forgive you when you don't and, and, and empowerment to continue on as I forgive you. Huh? How cool is that? Because I'm sitting here, I go, man, every day I fail, right? I need that grace. I need that forgiveness every day. There's not a day, there's not an hour that goes by. I don't need that. I probably sinned somehow in this sermon already, right? I don't even know my sins half the time, unfortunately. So I need his grace in my life so that I may seek his forgiveness and move forward and learn to love my wife more patiently and more kindly and not take those accounts in the wrong suffered and bear all things. You know, all those things are listed in 1 Corinthians 13. Wives, be in subjection to your husband. How would you like to be in subjection to a guy like that? It makes it a lot easier, doesn't it? Could you submit to, could you subject yourself to someone like that? Sure. You know, somebody once said that marriage is not so much in finding the right person as it is in being the right person. Once again, I hope you see the problem with marrying an unbeliever. This, this is a real mess if you mix it up like that. The text also has this, husbands, do not be embittered against your wife. I love, have you ever heard of the cotton patch version? It's a uh, paraphrase, all right? It's, it's, Pretty much a hunk of junk, by and large, but there's a version of the Bible for everybody. I love this one sometimes just for humorous readings. Uh, it's called the Cotton Patch Version. What it is is Paul is a converted Southerner. You see it, huh? You see the possibilities? Here's how, he tra- here's how this is translated in that one. Loosely, loosely translated. Men, love your wives and don't act ornery towards them. And I think there's a sense where that catches some of this embitterment because when we're embittered, we, 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 we react angrily. All the things that we've put off in Colossians 3 are really knotted up in this idea of bitterness, isn't it? So we're not to be harsh and we're not to be surly and we're not to be irritable. It seems to be a given that we shouldn't act that way since we're to love our wives but I think what God understands about us is it's hard for us. And so he says, hey, by the way, guys, don't go down that path. Love your wives. In case you didn't get that love should have covered this, don't be embittered towards them as well. 
when things aren't going exactly the way you think they ought to. So if we are husbands who love and women who are in subjection, we are in accordance with God's design for us as husbands and wife. And paradise is partially restored, in a sense. Paul doesn't stop there. He turns now to the relationship between children and parents. We're still inside the home here. Point number three, the Christian child. Verse 20. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now listen up, kids and youth that are in here, okay? Do you want to be pleasing to the Lord? Sure, right? This text tells you how to do it. Now the word children there is techna. That doesn't necessarily mean an infant or a toddler, but it means one who's under the roof. Uh, That's the idea of authority really coming in here. And by the way, this is the only command given specifically to children in the Bible. So check this one out. Kids, as as you're going, say, is there anything specific for me right now? This is one, all right? And this is really serious stuff. And if you don't believe me that it's serious, you ought to go read Proverbs 30, verse 17 sometime. Great parenting verse, by the way, if you want to scare your children. It says, the eye that mocks the father and scorns the mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. Saw some kids duck when I read that. The word of God says, hey, you know, this is serious. And, and authority is serious. That's the issue, really. is because we need to understand how we submit to the authority of God. All these different authority levels are, are what's being attacked. And all the lines are being blurred and all that kind of stuff. And so with the children, it really comes down to this issue of authority. And that's something that's drastically miss, missing in our society. Um, by the way, parents, when you're dealing with, we're in a school, right? When you're dealing with your children in school, um, Try to give the teacher the benefit of the doubt. Your kids aren't perfect, right? And help them to understand authority and how you deal with authority, even if it's good or bad and things like that. Romans 13 comes in handy there too. Tendency is for people to go, my kid's perfect. He didn't do that and fight the teacher, right? It's not a very good testimony. There's better ways to do that, even if your kid's right. The Word of God says, children, be continually, present tense again, obedient, and check this out, in all things. Of course, the exception there is Acts 5.29 again, we obey God rather than man. But obedience is, is this attitude of honor, okay? In the Old Testament, it was honor your father and mother, which is repeated in the New Testament. It's the first command with the promise, right? So that things can go well with you. Every kid, I'm a kid, or was a kid, and you know, you always want things to go well with you, Right? How awesome is it that God gives you kids a verse that says, you want things to go well with you? Here it is. Be obedient to your parents. Honor your father and mother. Treat them with respect. By the way, support is a part of this because we're still children to older parents even when we get older, right? I mean, my mom's here, you know. Part of it, you get to 1 Timothy 5, 17. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of the Lord. We need to take care of those who are our parents who are older than us too when those needs come along and not be like the scribes and the Pharisees who had the means and said, no, this is Korban. This is dedicated to the Lord. I can't use it for you, mom. I can't use it for you, dad, because, you know, I've dedicated it to the Lord. The big pious kind of, put on there, but it's not really about that, is it? I'm wanting to be selfish with my stuff, and I don't want to help you. So what God's simple command, children, is so easy, it's so simple, is that children obey your parents in all things. And that's well-pleasing to God. That's so simple, isn't it? 
Paul doesn't stop there. He has something to say to parents too. By the way, just because one doesn't act biblically, it doesn't give you the excuse not to do your side of this, these equations as you go through it. Like your husband isn't loving you as Christ of the church, you still need to be in subjection. Your wife isn't in subjection, you still need to love her as the church. Children, you need to obey your parents, even if your parents are not the greatest in the world at times and they're inconsistent. And parents, you know, there's, there's truth to that that we don't want to exasperate our children as well. Look at verse 21, the Christian parent, point four. Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. Now, the word fathers there, you might be tempted to say, well, why are you calling it the Christian parent? Uh, you need to understand the word father there is the same word in the Greek that's in Hebrews 11.23, which is translated there. If you look at that sometime, it's talking about Moses' parents, plural, okay? Moses' fathers, you know, pateras. Um, it, it's a word that is also used for parents. And I think it comes down to the root idea that that authority structure and the submission and all that, that the father's over it, so you can use a plural of that, okay? And I think we can apply this verse as such as well. Paul writes to the fathers or to the parents, do not exasperate your children. Now, moms, it's not okay to exasperate your children. I think you agree with that. We can go to other verses if we had to, right? Do not exasperate your children. The word exasperate is used only here and in 2 Corinthians 9, 2 in a whole different kind of context where it is used for the idea of something being stirred up. Do not stir up your children in a negative sense here. You know, it's interesting, you know, I, <laughs> I know I'd be a better father today than I was like when I was 23 and my first child was born. I have no doubts about that. I've learned a lot. But, you know, God's design, I think it's, I'd be a worse father in some ways because I wouldn't have the energy to do it now. Um, God's design is we have our kids when we're young, by and large, right? You know, and, and as a result of that, there's about 300 guys that become first-time fathers Every month. And you say, well, yeah, I remember the feeling when I first, you know, when we got the result back and Kim was pregnant with our firstborn and it was like, and especially after she was born, it's like, whoa, what do I do, you know? Is there a manual? You know, and everybody does that, right? They go down to Barnes & Noble in parenting section, you know, Dr. Spock, not the guy from Star Trek, but the other one, uh, just as weird and out of there, out there as that. But, you know, and we start getting all this advice from everybody, you know, uh, does Oprah have a book on this in her book club? You know, what's Dr. Phil having to say on this today? Let me tell you what, you go to the Word of God and you find truth there. And God did not leave us without an instruction manual, as it were. Now, it may not have every specific thing that you want, like, uh, you know, what should I do if they wake up in the middle of the night? Should I let them sleep in my bed? Should I make them cry and leave them in their crib? You know, all that kind of stuff that you're always trying to figure out. But it gives you a lot of uh, character issues that will help you to deal with those things and make godly decisions. And if any one of you lacks wisdom, you know, we ask of the Father and he gives it to us. And it may be a little different in your situation than it was in your situation on how you deal with those things. And we don't want to be... All of a sudden, these people say, well, my kids are, have done well. Let me tell you how it's supposed to be done. And if you don't do it this way, you're screwing up. Let's say the Lord. This is you know, raising kids only God's way, right? We go to the word of God and we seek his wisdom. But as a result of that, it is really easy, I think especially for fathers as you think about this, to exasperate or stir up your children. There are a lot of ways we do that. We do it with overprotection. We provide maybe too many rules of our own making and we're inconsistent with them. We don't trust them, so we kind of end up smothering them. Or we can play favorites, comparing one kid with the other. You're going to connect with your kids differently, right? Some kids you, are more fun to you than another kid because your likes might be similar. This is reality. 
But as you start comparing, well, why can't you get A's like, you know, Sally, you know, then you really start to frustrate them, right? Depreciating their worth, not listening to them, and trying to help them to understand God's truth, not giving them the biblical reason why you have expectations and take them to verses so they can understand Scripture in this situation. That's one of the greatest things you can do as a parent, I think, is when you're instructing, try to bring the biblical foundation and precept for why you're asking this of them or expecting this of them so they know that, number one, you're not the end authority because you're going to fail and come off the pedestal at some point probably, right? But God's the authority. And so we go back to his word as the foundation. And from that, they also are modeled to them that I need to go to God's word to get my foundations and truths, not just mom and dad only, right? I'll ask for their advice and their counsel and compare that to scripture as time goes on, right? Sometimes we set unrealistic goals. We don't reward them for anything or we reward them for everything. (laughs) Whatever they do is not enough. Sometimes we don't show them affection, there's one study done that says the average father of, a, of, a, of an infant child or a toddler spends 37 seconds a day with a small son. Can you imagine? 37 seconds. That ought not be. Sometimes we exasperate them by neglecting them, not providing for their needs. It's particularly bad when you have all the toys and you buy anything you want for yourself and you don't do anything for them and maybe even don't fulfill actual true needs because of your toys. I think Absalom's a great example of this. David neglected him, and he became the biggest heartache of his life. Criticizing their work, always telling them what's wrong, never encouraging them with what's right. Over-disciplining, disciplining with anger. That's a big one, guys, especially. It's real easy to, you know, discipline with anger, right? You put your kids to bed. Okay, turn, turn off the lights, no more talking. You go back, you're going to maybe relax for the first time that day after being at work and parenting and all this kind of stuff. And you and your wife are together and just having a good old time, being together, just the two of you, like you remember before kids how it was and that kind of thing. And all of a sudden you hear something, 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 you know, all this kind of stuff coming out of there. And you go back and you fling open the door and you get, I told you guys, you know, and you're upset about it. Why? You're not upset because they're disobeying God, which just means it's not, they're not being well-pleasing to God by not honoring their parents and obeying their parents and all that kind of stuff. You're upset because it's infringing upon your own situation, right? That's over, you coming in with anger. If you thought about that in terms of what it means biblically, like the verse we're talking about today with the children of being obedient and what goes well with them and all that kind of stuff, you would go in there with a whole different kind of attitude, wouldn't you? and a lot more patience, and a lot more urgency in some ways, true kind of urgency. Are you tracking with me? With this over-discipline idea, that, that, guys, I know you think you can beat them into submission, but it really just doesn't work, right? I mean, I, in our ranch days in Kansas, there were really two ways that you could, uh, you could uh, ah, what's the word I'm looking for? Train a horse, right? You get a wild horse. Two ways you can train a horse, a wild horse. One of it is you start progressively and you use a, you know, a blanket on their back and a bit and a bridle and a saddle eventually and all this kind of stuff. And you're walking them around and you're getting them used to different levels of, 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 of uh, domestic, being domesticated, right? And you do that and if it's done correctly, it can produce a, a full-spirited, obedient horse. The other, that takes time and effort. The other way is much quicker, but... And much less difficult, I suppose. 
The wrangler simply goes out to his barn. He picks up a two by four. He goes over to the wild horse and he just whacks him across the head. That sounds nice, doesn't it? What happens is the horse then eventually gets, as he's knocked to his knees, he's tamed and he's afraid, but it's at a great cost. You end up with a, a spiritless animal. An animal, though obedient, will never be what he could be because the spirit's been broken. There are people who raise their children that way. I'm not talking about hitting them with two by four, obviously. But, you know, it's all about, well, all I got to do is whip them and, you know, spare the rod, squirrel the That's what the Bible says, okay? I know our society, nobody wants to spank and all that kind of stuff anymore. And that's not really the issue I'm talking about here. There's a place for that, obviously, according to God's word. But can I just tell you this? Sometimes it's done as the only parenting. We let them kind of run wild and we laugh at when they're disobedient, different things like that, until it kind of infringes and it's like, now we got to deal with this. Mom's going, you wait till your father gets home and all dad is, you know, when is the guy who comes home, takes off his belt, and you know, ninja dad. All these things add up to, to exasperation and stirring up your children. And Paul's warning here is don't exasperate your children so that, what? They don't lose heart. Don't lose spirit is what literally it says there. Athumeo, it's alpha primitive, A, which is like amoral, not moral, agnostic, uh, not, not, uh, not uh, knowing. Gnostic means to know. Uh, a, alpha primitive, plus the word for spirit, without spirit. So they don't have their spirit lost. Some time ago, the Houston Police Department put out a leaflet that said how to, it's called How to Run Your Children. And here's the, here's the instructions. Number one, begin at infancy and give the child everything he wants. Number two, this is a secular, this is a police department for this. Up. Number two, when he picks up bad words, laugh at him. You ever see that? Things that if a teenager said with a little kid says them, parents just go, <laughs> that's cute, isn't it? Mm. Never give him any spiritual training. This is the Houston Police Department. Never give him any spiritual training. Let him wait until he's 21 and decide for himself. Avoid using the word wrong. He may get a guilt complex. Pick up everything he leaves laying around so that he will be experienced in throwing responsibility on everyone else. How to run your children. You see, parents, what we need to do is we need to look at ourselves as temporary custodians of the stewardship God's given us of these beautiful children that are a gift from him. If every every parent were to adopt the concept that children are on loan from God, it would change our parenting, wouldn't it? Think about Jonathan Edwards and Max Jukes and the different results that by trying to put God first in their in the lives of their in the family, the impact that had. I, I don't want you to take that in the wrong way. I really want to be clear about this, okay? Because I know even in our time here, I know some kids have wandered and things like that. And you say, I've, did, I've done that stuff. You know what? That happens. Okay? That's why I said earlier, proverb, train up your child in the way you should go when he's old enough depart from it is a proverb, which is a, tr- a truth that is generally true, not a promise where it's you do this, X equals Y. Okay? I want you to understand that. All you have to do is go through the kings. Sometimes do that. Go through kings and chronicles and look at the children. You can have a good king who loved the Lord, who followed the Lord, tore down idols, all this kind of stuff. In the next generation, his son 
that became king was the worst one ever. And you can have the worst one ever in there, and you'll find this if you do this study, that'll have a great kid. It's like, what in the world? He didn't train him up in any way, but still the grace of God, right? And you'll have good ones with good kids and bad ones with bad kids and all combinations. And I think by the grace of God, we see that in there so that we understand that our job is to take our stewardship seriously, right? And pour our lives into these kids. And then just like you were saved by grace, they will be too, right? By his grace. God has a design for every one of us. Some it's a wife, some it's a husband, some it's singleness. All of us have been children. Many will be parents. But in all those positions, there is a design. And they're very simple here, these four instructions, aren't they? And the question really boils down at the end as you try to say, okay, what do I do with this? It comes down to this. Will I obey God's pithy, clear statements? that he gives me in scripture. Wives be subject to your husbands. Husbands love your wife as is fitting, right? Children obey your parents. Parents don't exasperate your children. Or will we elevate our intellect above the word of God and decide we figured out a better way? How you respond to God's truth today will tell what you believe about God and his word. Simple as that. Do you believe it's right? Do you believe it's true? Do you believe that you're to be in subjection to it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. And Lord, we thank you so much for uh, helping us to cover this ground. Uh, We pray that while we move through it very fast, that you would change each of our lives and conform us more into the image of your son so that our transformed lives can help transform uh, the world around. In Christ's name, amen.